This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. Today, snake bites. What to do and what not to do. Okay. Oh. Damn. Did he bite you? I think so. Oh, you're kidding me. No, I got him. Hang on, you've been bitten. Yeah. Sorry, guys. Really sorry. All right. First aid. Yeah, you got me. Yeah, got me. When we find out what happens next <laughs> later on in the health report. How doctors, you'll also find out how doctors are betraying their Hippocratic Oath, top to bottom and side to side, and what it means for all of us. And it's a disease we've lived with for millennia, and it causes hundreds of thousands of deaths every year, the majority in children under five. I'm talking about malaria, and last week saw a milestone in the fight against the mosquito-borne illness as the World Health Organisation recommended broad use for the first vaccine against it. The RTSS malaria vaccine targets one of five strains of the parasites that cause malaria, P. falciparum, the most common strain in sub-Saharan Africa. It's an imperfect vaccine. It's given in four doses across 18 months, and it's only 30 to 40% effective. But the scale of malaria means it's still predicted to save the lives of tens of thousands of babies and young children each year, depending on how well it can be rolled out. So here to talk about the implications for this vaccine is Leanne Robinson, who studies vector-borne diseases, including malaria, at the Burnett Institute. Welcome, Leanne. Hello. So we've been pretty spoilt this last year or so. We've had multiple highly effective COVID vaccines developed in months. I think it's spoilt us for what usually goes into making a vaccine. This vaccine for malaria has been 30 years in the making. It falls pretty far short of the WHO target, which was for a 75% effective first-generation malaria vaccine. Why is it so hard to make a good malaria vaccine? Yeah, thanks, Tegan. And I think it's really important to emphasise, as you said, the plasmodium parasite, it's a complex organism. There are five different strains and this vaccine targets one of them. Uh, And it's a multicellular organism that interacts with two hosts, the mosquito um, and the human. And it expresses a really large number and a high diversity of surface proteins. And these are different between the different forms of malaria. And so if we do compare with something that everybody's you know, pretty familiar with now in terms of, of COVID, the vaccines for which have been developed you know, really rapidly, but they've been developed specifically using one key protein that the virus relies upon. Whereas malaria parasites have a whole suite of proteins that they can essentially choose between to successfully invade host cells replicate and cause disease. But then I think the other thing that, you know, does have to be taken into account a little bit when we consider that this is a major milestone that that partners have been working on for for more than 30 years is that, again, in comparison to something like COVID where we've seen many vaccines developed very rapidly, the high interest and motivation from pharmaceutical companies and governments just hasn't been there to the same level for malaria. Uh, a disease which largely affects populations living in low and middle income countries. So I think like with all that in mind, you know, the recent endorsement um, for the first ever malaria vaccine really is an important milestone um, for high burden countries in sub-Saharan Africa. Right. And when you have those, you're saying high burden countries, they're countries that often have uh, healthcare systems that aren't 
structured the way they are in countries like Australia, it's one thing to have a vaccine, like it's an amazing thing to have a vaccine. It's another thing to actually get it into the people who need it. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that's really where the WHO recommendation is is based on these results from an ongoing uh, pilot program in three countries in Africa that has really seen the vaccine implemented and, and given like through the health system to more than 800,000 children. And it, it has demonstrated that despite the modest efficacy, it's feasible and cost effective to deliver in high risk areas. And when we consider that in these settings, you know, we're talking about hundreds of children under five dying from malaria every day. What is a modest efficacy of 30% um, still means, you know, an additional tool um, that can provide a 30% reduced risk of severe illness or death and greatly complement existing interventions that are really the mainstay of malaria control, such as long-lasting insecticide-treated nets and indoor residual spraying and effective case management. So all of those things stay in addition to this vaccine. It's particularly important for places where kids can't get uh, medical help really quickly if they do catch malaria? Yeah, absolutely. Again, I think even within endemic countries, we have to recognise that the majority of the burden is borne by by rural populations um, that are often uh, perhaps uh, poorer and have less access um, even to program-delivered malaria control tools. Um, So this vaccine would really be providing in those settings a safety net or a layered approach where in addition to to hopefully benefiting from sleeping underneath bed nets, in addition um, from hopefully getting access to prompt treatment for fever when they experience it, these children would have an additional safety net of protection from a vaccine that could prevent that malaria episode from becoming really severe um, and, and causing their death. So you mentioned before just how complex it is. It's really complex. Uh, the, the parasites differ between species, but is this a step forward to, to vaccines for, say, the strains that our Pacific neighbours live with? Yeah, I mean, I think we would certainly hope so. I mean, uh, this, as we've said, it's the first ever malaria vaccine. I think uh, it's widely considered to be a first-generation vaccine and it will absolutely um, teach us a lot, um, not only uh, about how to make uh, an effective vaccine and and there's a considerable amount of effort and investment continuing globally in understanding how to achieve higher protective efficacy, not only with this vaccine but with other vaccines candidates, as well as how to take them through the pipeline of trials required to demonstrate safety and efficacy. But there's also an opportunity to take advantage of rapid advances um, uh, that uh, that we've seen, you know, um, uh, yield enormous benefits in terms of mRNA vaccines um, to try and achieve longer lasting um, protection, not only for, as you say, falciparum malaria, but Vivax malaria. Countries in our region, um, you know, have a dual burden uh, of falciparum and Vivax. And so, you know, whilst a a vaccine that can prevent severe illness and death from falciparum, you know, may still be something that countries in our region are, are interested in, it's not going to solve the malaria problem for them. So one of the things we've heard a lot about this past year is vaccine hesitancy. Just briefly, what's the attitude towards this new vaccine in the communities that need it? 
Yeah, I think that's really important, Tegan. Although the implementation studies have demonstrated um, in, in those three countries that the vaccine is well accepted, a critical next step really must be ensuring strong preparatory activities uh, to ensure communication and awareness is optimised to maximise uptake and, and to even, you know, really work with communities uh, around what that would take. Um, we, we know, as you say, that um, we feel it more acutely than ever right now, that even a highly efficacious public health tool um, is only effective in the community if, if they're well accepted. Um, and this will be important um, for this vaccine um, in order to, to maximise um, the chance to turn a moderate protective efficacy into real world effectiveness. Leanne, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thanks very much for having me. Professor Leanne Robinson is Program Director of Health Security and Group Leader for Vector-Borne Diseases and Tropical Public Health at the Burnett Institute. Thanks, Tegan. You're listening to RN's Health Report. Now, if you're a regular listener, you'd know that the last thing we do in the Health Report is spruik the latest new medical gadget or treatment, and we do try to be sober and evidence-informed. We try to respect the adage that sometimes doing nothing is the best thing to do. But according to a new book, that doesn't often happen out there in the real world of medicine. It claims that doctors are betraying their Hippocratic Oath all the time. Sometimes they know they are, but often they don't. The result is harm, enormous waste, and lost opportunities to invest in care that works. The book's called Hypocrisy, and its authors are Professors Rochelle Buchbinder and Ian Harris. Rochelle is a rheumatologist and researcher at Monash University and the Cabrini Hospital. Ian is an orthopaedic surgeon and researcher at the University of New South Wales. Welcome back to the Health Report, both. Thank Thanks, you. Ellen. Now, I just, you, you quote at the beginning of the book a new version of the, well, a relatively modern version of the Hippocratic Oath, and I'll just quote bits of it. It's not, you know, it's not the Greek version. One is, I will apply for the benefit of the sick all measures which are required, avoiding those twin traps of overtreatment and therapeutic nihilism. I will remember that there's an art to medicine as well as science and that warmth, sympathy and understanding may outweigh the surgeon's knife or the chemist's drug. I will remember that I do not treat a fever chart, a cancerous growth, but a sick human being whose illness may affect the person's family and economic stability. My responsibility includes these related problems if I am to care adequately for the sick. I will prevent disease whenever I can for prevention, for, you know, for prevention is better preferable to cure. I will remember that I remain a member of society with special obligations to all my fellow human beings those sound of mind and body as well as the infirm. So, I mean, it goes on, so I'm only taking part of it. I mean, um, let's just go through this. I mean, this is, this, is what, this is the benchmark for your book, I take it. Exactly, yeah, that's what we, we centred the book around. So each chapter is a, um, a pledge of the oath. Um, and so there's 10 chapters uh, for 10 pledges. And it was amazing. I mean, we wanted to write a book on over diagnosis over treatment, too much medicine. Um, and we didn't realise how well the Hippocratic Oath fitted. And once we read it, we thought, wow, this is, the book's going to sort of write itself around these oaths. Rochelle, talk to me about the twin traps of overtreatment and therapeutic nihilism. So, the, I mean, the overtreatment, we see the problems of overtreatment in our everyday practices, both of us, uh, and it involves uh, treating people that, that where the treatment is not going to benefit them and might harm them, uh, as well as over-medicalisation of, of things that are just part of uh, normal life that, that we over-treat. 
and overdiagnosed. So give me some examples. Uh, so things like um, ageing, um, pre-hypertension, sarcopenia, which is, um, you know, weak muscles that you get as you age. Uh, these are um, grief, sadness. Uh, so these are examples of um, normal parts of life that 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 in some instances we've either medicalised and 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 opened them up to treatment or medicalisation. I mean, Ian, as a surgeon, I, I, therapeutic neuralism. I mean, pancreatic cancer to me is an interesting example. While Rochelle's talking about over treatment there. If you've got pancreatic cancer, you do better, you do far better. In fact, you can live much longer if you simply go to a centre where they're used to dealing with pancreatic cancer and they're not nihilistic. In other words, um, they they actually, when people are not used to treating pancreatic cancer, they undertreat rather than overtreat. And you think that they would overtreat and um, you're better going to a centre where they actually know when to operate and when not. Yeah, that's right. Um, you, you, there's lots of examples where if you go to a, a a treatment place that has more experience or perhaps a more multidisciplinary uh, care, you will get better care. I mean, cancer care has changed enormously since I started medicine. It's now a multidisciplinary thing where people from different fields of cancer, you know, radiation, uh, surgery, medicine, all get together and work out the best thing for this patient. Whereas before, if you went to see a radiation oncologist, you got radiation. If you went to see a surgeon, you got surgery. And so the treatment for, for cancer has improved a lot, but there's still a lot of over-treatment in cancer and, and mistreatment as well. Which is where, Rochelle, the business of medicine comes in. I mean, you talk about the new oncology drugs that have come in at huge expense with very small benefit. Yes, I, I think uh, that there is a, a lot of treatments that are expensive uh, that that may not provide um, enough benefit for, for their for their cost and their their resource use, uh, and and those things could be better spent on on things that we you know that that might provide benefit to a greater proportion of the population or greater benefit. Uh, with less harm, and we're not at all saying that that expensive treatments aren't good. I mean, in some cases they've re revolutionised care. For example, in in my area of rheumatology, uh, the new expensive drugs have have really changed the outcome of people with uh, conditions like rheumatoid arthritis. But what we really focus on in in the book is treatment that that is wasteful, that won't help the patient, often can harm the patient and takes away resources uh, and time from uh, getting on with the job of, of treating people that do need uh, medical care. The other, one of the things you talk about in the book is that benefits are overestimate and doctors are really bad at balancing the harms and they underestimate the, ris uh, they underestimate the risks. And, and they overestimate the benefit, yeah. Uh, that, that's Why does that occur? The, well, I think everybody does it. I mean, I think if you go and see, uh, you know, a Toyota dealer, they think the Toyotas are better than the other cars, and they probably really believe it. But other professions are the same. And it's been shown systematically in a review by researchers at Bond University that physicians of all types, you know, surgeons, physicians, whatever, uh, consistently overestimate the benefit that treatments provide compared to what the evidence actually shows. 
and consistently underestimate the harms of what they do compared to what the evidence tells us. So there's systematic bias there. But the bias, Rochelle, goes beyond that. You've done research into a, uh, into a procedure called vertebroplasty where they pump uh, cement, if you like, into a collapsed vertebra to reduce, uh, allegedly reduce pain. You've done you know, two randomised controls which shows that it doesn't work. And yet you, you're vilified for, for actually coming up with the evidence that it doesn't work. Why, why does that occur? Is this because of money, vested interests, or just you're shaking people's egos? What's going on there? <laughs> uh, well, Sorry to re-enkindle re, um, re a trauma in your life. My trauma. I, I mean, I think all of those factors, there are, there are many factors. The, if I'm being kind, the, the biggest factor is the lack of science literacy, uh, the fact that people don't understand the evidence. So, the you know, okay, it may not work in this group, but it works in this group. Uh, and when you've shown in five trials compared to placebo that a treatment doesn't work, then it really makes no sense that there would be a subgroup that it did benefit because there'd have to be another subgroup that actually were harmed. And so I think that's a combination of wishful thinking, uh, fee-for-service, erroneous beliefs and, and inability to really appreciate and understand the evidence and, and be prepared to understand the evidence rather than go with anecdotal beliefs, particularly for conditions that get better quickly, whatever you do. So I don't think doctors, often, you know, some doctors recognise that for these self-limited conditions, and it applies to things like tennis elbow and back pain, they get better in their own time. And treatment really doesn't influence that time course. It's just at random, probably. And one of the things you have a go at in the book is treating by numbers, which comes to the the chapter and the, the part of the Hippocratic Oath. I'm, I'm not treating a fever chart, a cancer growth, but a patient, Ian. Yeah, there's, there's a good term for that, the um, normalisation heuristic, uh, where there's this strong tendency for us to measure things and then to normalise them. So, you know, whether that's a blood pressure or a glucose level. Now, of course, there's times where that can be very helpful, um, but there's examples where it's actually harmful to do that um, in, in blood pressure by lowering the threshold um, the way some recommendations have recently. You're going to get to the situation where nearly half the population has uh, high blood pressure. And the, the more you lower the threshold, the less benefit you give those people who are on the borderline, but they're still exposed to the same harms. Um, it's a big book. People are going to get lots of um, from it. But briefly, I mean, what's, what, are, what are doctors to do about this? Apart from, we'll talk about consumers in a minute. We've only got a minute, to, a short time to go. But what are we to do about this? Well, I mean, starting at the base level, I think we need better medical education. We need to have continued medical education through the, the career course of doctors so they, they actually understand evidence and uh, science, scientific principles of clinical epidemiology. And, you know, everybody's an epidemiologist now, so it's a good time now perhaps to think about, about uh, critical appraisal skills. And I think that's essential and it's got to be combined with better communication uh, and giving patients the permission to ask them questions about the evidence. And you caught the right questions to ask your doctor in the book and also presumably governments have got to get rid of the perverse financial incentives. Look, thank you very much to you both. Good luck with the book. 
So Thanks very much, Norman. The book's called Hypocrisy in the University of New South Wales Press and the authors are Rochelle Bookbinder and Ian Harris. Over to you, Tegan. Well, as we head into the warmer months and lockdowns begin to lift in the southeastern states, more people will be getting out and about, including on bushwalks. But where there's bush, there might be a snake or two. And some of our snakes, like the eastern brown, are among the most venomous in the world. So what do you do if you encounter a snake or worse, get bitten by one? Dr. Christina Zdenek is a toxinologist at the University of Queensland and an expert in snake venom and behaviour. She's also one of the ABC's top five scientists for 2021. And she's put together this story on what to do if you get bitten, what happens at the hospital and the mistakes doctors can sometimes make when treating snake bite. And a heads up, the first thing you're going to hear is an actual recording of Christina getting bitten by a snake. Okay. Oh. Damn. Did he bite you? I think so. Oh, you're kidding me. No, I got him. Hang on, you've been bitten. Yeah. Sorry, guys. Really sorry. No All right. First aid. Yeah, you got me. Oh, yeah, you got your last. Is this your first bite? Yep. Just trying to calm myself. Just relax. Nothing's going yeah. to happen. That was a bad angle. That's what went wrong. Yeah, I know, you had it too far down in that split second. Yeah. Um, and now immobilization. Yeah. This is the audio of when I was bitten by a highly venomous jugite, a type of brown snake from the Perth region. My first reaction to being bitten was to apologize to those in the room for ruining their evening and stressing them out. It's a stressful situation because it is a medical emergency. Can we do anything for you? And you can die as a result if you do the wrong thing after being bitten. As I was being bandaged up, my mind wandered to how exactly the toxins in the venom would act on my blood, because this is precisely what I research. Literally, I was imagining the toxins flowing through my blood and starting a domino effect to cast a net around the red blood cells to cause a clot. Then I thought, damn, I've gone 10 years of snake handling without a bite, and now my perfect track record is buggered. Without proper snake bite management and antivenom treatment, brown snake bites can make you collapse in just 15 minutes and cause death within 30 minutes. They're one of the fastest killing snakes in the world, but we did everything right and the hospital was nearby. I'm still embarrassed to admit I've been bitten by a venomous snake. Part of my job is to handle these venomous snakes for field studies where I track their movements or do lab studies looking at snake behavior. At home in my Brisbane townhouse, I have 26 pet snakes, 16 of which are highly venomous. They all need cleaning and feeding fortnightly and are used in snake handling courses and for venom extraction. So we're heading into the warmer months, which means lockdowns are not, more people will be out and about, and so will snakes. And if you come across a snake, you want to know how to avoid getting bitten. Well, the best advice I can give you is to give them space. Snakes are cowards. They're terrified of us. We are huge predators to them. They'd rather bolt away than fight. A super cool and elegant study tracked both humans and snakes and recorded the reaction of snakes when encountering these people. Less than 1% of snake encounters resulted in a strike. Although it's unlikely you'll encounter a snake, wear shoes just in case because snake bites often occur on the lower legs. 
So what if you are bitten by a venomous snake? How do you survive? As always, we have a lot to learn from First Nations people. The Jenga people from inland Queensland survive by simply lying down under a tree, staying completely still for four to five days. Their mob, of course, looked after them with food and water. Nowadays, we have modern-day medicine, anti-venom. In the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, Australia's six snake antivenoms were developed. We actually led the world. And most of our hospitals have good stock. Some remote hospitals don't, but we have the Royal Flying Doctors. They actually saved my husband's life when he was bitten by a snake in the Northern Territory. He's a professional snake handler, too. But the key to surviving a snake bite actually comes before getting to hospital. So I'm going to tell you what to do immediately after you've been bitten. The common thread between most snake bite deaths in Australia is a failure to manage the snake bite correctly. So you stay still, like First Nations people did. Literally don't move a muscle. Basically, the more your muscles contract and the higher your heart rate, the quicker the venom travels through your body and does the damage. The second thing you need to remember if you're bitten by a venomous snake is to apply a compression bandage to the limb. Similar to how you would a sprained ankle and starting from the end of the limb, working your way all the way up using a second bandage if needed. Then immobilize the limb in a splint if possible. The compression bandage is critical because it buys you time by slowing the venom flow through your body. If caught without a bandage, I'd be using my clothing instead. So the bandage delays the venom from entering the blood. Venom in the blood is bad because the blood then takes the venom all over the body, except the brain. I'd also say this, once at the hospital, do not let the medical staff remove your compression bandage quickly. My husband nearly died when the doctors removed his bandage too fast, because in doing so, it opened up the floodgates for the death adder venom, sending his body into shock. He was in a coma for three days. Fortunately, anti-venom saved his life. Doctors rarely treat snakebite in Australia, so I'm guessing that's why they mightn't know to take the bandage off super slowly, like over the course of an hour. It should be removed in sections, starting from the top down. This lets the venom enter the body at sublethal doses, giving your body a chance to fight back and not be overwhelmed. Antivenom should also be on hand before the bandage is removed. When I was bitten by the brown snake, the one I told you about earlier, my arm was bandaged within 30 seconds, and I was at the hospital in eight minutes. I actually recorded some of that audio. As you can see, the brown well there has also gone blue, meaning that she definitely has brown snake venom in her. So she will now proceed to a major hospital, but you'll be right. We're in the London Hospital, three and a half hours post-envenomation. Seen a doctor yet, and um, still asymptomatic, which is a good sign. Still waiting to hear the results of my blood test, and I have insisted on a second blood test because the venom would have travelled further by now. All right, good news. I'm out of the hospital. It's 18 hours post bite, and Chris is here. Pick me up. <laughs> I had some really low blood pressure and heart rate and they were a little concerned about that but um yeah basically dodged a bullet hey definitely definitely could have been a lot more serious than what it was yeah 
So no, very lucky. Now it's time to tell mother. She's yes. not going to be happy about this. No, she's not. Or tell her after everything is okay. Absolutely, that's the way to go. So, prevention is better than cure. Avoid a bite by giving snakes space. If you do get bitten, it's how you manage your snake bite that will determine if you survive. I survived my bite, and my husband did too. And so can you, even if it's the world's most venomous snake. University of Queensland toxinologist Dr Christina Zdenek, one of this year's top five scientists with ABCRN. And there's more information on how to handle a snake bite on the Health Report website. Norman, I met Christina during her top five residency. She has a pet snake called Netflix. Oh, God. But I'm not sure Netflix has ever bitten her. I was sort of very agitated as I was listening to that. I feel empowered now. I do bushwalk quite a lot and I always carry a snake bite kit with me because it's a risk that we take. Yeah. I remember bushwalking in um, Sunshine Coast along in the National Park and there was a brown snake lying on the path and um, people were just standing over it, looking at it and having a conversation about it. And, nah, uh, turn around and walk the other way, I think. <laughs> yeah, people in their bare feet as well. Anyway, that's another story. Well, if you've got questions about snake bites or other things, you can email us healthreport at abc.net.au. We've got a nice crop of questions this week, Norman, because um, it's been a week or two since we've done the mailbag. Mm -hmm. First question comes from Bernie, who is a 62-year-old non-smoker male, and he's talking about gum disease and its relevance to heart disease. Uh, It's something that we've talked about some years ago now, and he's sort of wanting to know what the latest is on the degree of disease required to elevate your risk of heart disease. Basically, Bernie's got a a dodgy tooth that's giving him a bit of pain and his dentist wants to pull it out. He's wondering if it's gum disease or nerve damage causing his discomfort. And um, is there any way to know for sure if there is disease? Well, your dentist should be able to diagnose periodontal disease. As I've said before on the health report, what I know about dentistry could be written on the back of a molar, (laughs) a very small molar, a child's molar, not an adult molar. But I do know a bit about periodontal disease and so gum disease and, and heart risk. This is controversial. So there have been studies which show that people who have chronic gum disease have elevated risk of coronary heart disease. But there's also other stuff that goes along with periodontal disease. I'm sure it's not you, Bernie, but people who smoke, who have a poor lifestyle, that goes along with periodontal disease. Previous poor uh, dental hygiene, which goes along with poor lifestyle. So it's very hard to unpick the periodontal disease itself from the lifestyle that goes along with it, which is not uniform. It's absolutely not, not uniform. But what you describe in terms of a single tooth and a problem there and it being irritated is that there's reasonable evidence that if you've got a site of inflammation in your body, it does activate your immune system and can cause collateral damage elsewhere in your body. So there is an argument, and I'm not giving you advice here, you take it from your dentist because your dentist knows what he or she's talking about and I don't. But there is evidence that if you remove the infection, a chronic source of infection, that you actually do help to deactivate your immune system and therefore... It's not on alert, for example, if your cholesterol's up a bit and you've got an overactive immune system, this is the theory with periodontal disease, then you're more likely to get inflammation in your arteries when the cholesterol comes in, that inflammation causes, helps to cause atherosclerosis. So it's, it's a good idea, particularly, um, you know, you're pretty young, 62, when you're getting on a bit and you're more likely to have coronary heart disease because age is the strongest risk factor, Um, to get rid of any source of inflammation. But that does not 
um, override your dentist's advice. So are you saying then that any chronic infection could be lifting your risk of heart disease? Like it wouldn't have to be a gum infection? No, that, no it doesn't. It's, essentially, it's a source of inflammation which activates elsewhere in your body. But it's, well, it's, a, it's unusual to have chronic infection anywhere but in your mouth. The mouth is the commonest place for it, really. Probably one of the commonest places for it. Well, another gentleman in his early 60s is Andrew. He has an essential tremor. And uh, he's heard that you could have a brain implant to control the tremors and a small part of your brain could be blasted with rays to, con- to stop tremors. Um, as you might guess, Andrew is reluctant about this. Um, but he's wondering basically whether cannabis oil might be helpful for, the, for his tremor and could his doctor prescribe it? And he also asks, why does his doctor ask about alcohol all the time? Mm. Um, essential tremor, nobody really understands fully what's caused it. It's a, it's a Parkinson's-like problem, but it's essentially it's a problem all on its own where you, you get really what can be quite a disabling tremor. And it can happen in younger people as well. So there are drugs that can help, and um, Andrew's had problems with these drugs. So there's a fairly new ultrasound technique using that's MRI-guided that can help sort out the tremor. And this is one of the treatments, presumably, that you're referring to. Um, alcohol can help essential tremor, but it can wear off. Um, people can get dependent on the alcohol because you start using the alcohol to treat the tremor, which is not a good idea. So it's, it's one of those curious things where alcohol can help. Interestingly, not with essential tremor, with, but with Parkinson's disease, it's one of the few diseases where smoking may actually reduce the incidence of heart Parkinson's disease and may actually help. Um, it's probably one of the few. Why? Nobody understands why. It may be the nicotine. and People have tried, tested whether nicotine patches can help. I'm not sure that they do. Cannabis oil, people are studying cannabis oil for essential tremor. It works in animal models. I'm not sure there's very good human evidence. A question from Francisco, who's writing to us from Newcastle-upon-Tyne in the UK. Hi, Francisco. I hope you're dealing okay with the time zone difference here. Um, Asking, given that recent research has linked depression in some people to inflammation, does that mean that non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs might be a treatment for some people? Very good question. It's a a similar kind of story. It goes the other way, they think, with depression, that people who are depressed the depression activates the immune system and and perhaps causes inflammation, which is one reason, a very physical reason, why depression may be related to an increased risk of coronary heart disease and heart attacks. And this sort of inflammation in the body is not necessarily helped by non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. The same kind of inflammation is related to, is possibly related to Alzheimer's disease and some forms of dementia. And NSAIDs, non-steroidal inflammatory drugs, have not been shown to Uh, be of benefit, unfortunately, in Alzheimer's disease. It would be nice if they did. Some NSAIDs actually increase the risk of coronary heart disease. So you've got to be a bit careful here. I didn't know there was more than one type of inflammation. I just thought it was inflammation. Well, no, no. Sorry, I misled. It's basically activation of your immune system, which causes irritation and increases the risk of oxidation, which is biological rusting. Inflammation essentially... Um, produces a state of the body where um, you're more likely, your tissues are more likely to age and fibrose and react to the general environment than otherwise. Right. And a final question from Karen, who's asking about bowel cancer screening for people who are high risk, asking how long do you have to continue having colonoscopies for bowel cancer screening? Her father-in-law died from bowel cancer, and so her husband has had four colonoscopies at five-year intervals to screen for bowel cancer. 
Never found anything of concern. No one else in the family has any sign of bowel problems. He's going to keep on being screened, but she's wondering whether it's necessary. Is his risk really that much more than anyone else in the population? Bowel cancer screening, the National Bowel Cancer Screening Program is using faecal occult blood testing where you test your poo every year or two from the age of 50. I think it's every two years, if I remember rightly. I should know this. I did the ad for it. Um, (laughs) And if you test positive, then you go for a colonoscopy. If you've got a strong family history um, or you've got symptoms, then you may qualify for colonoscopy screening. And presumably that's what your husband's been recommended because of your father-in-law. Now, one family member with bowel cancer does not necessarily qualify you as a family history. If he had bowel cancer at an early age, say under 50, or sometimes they they say under 60, then that may qualify you for a family history and therefore you bypass the faecal occult blood testing and you go to colonoscopy. The interval between colonoscopies is controversial and nobody's really fully sorted that out. And if you haven't had any polyps or signs of bowel cancer risk, then there may be an argument for extending the gap between your colonoscopies, but that's between you and your colorectal surgeon or your gastroenterologist. If you want to know more about this, you can read up on the National Bowel Cancer Screening Program or the National Health and Medical Research Guidelines on Bowel Cancer Screening. That gives you the idea of this. There is a condition called, that gives you a better idea, there is a condition called Lynch syndrome. Now, Lynch syndrome is, and I won't give you all the, quali- all the ways you qualify for having Lynch syndrome, but Lynch syndrome is a syndrome, is a family, it's the commonest family cancer syndrome. And it involves various cancers, but predominantly bowel cancer, diagnosed at an early age in more than one family member. But it also includes uterine cancer, um, ovarian cancer, and various other cancers. Um, And so there's usually a strong family history of various cancers, particularly at an early age. And if, if you think you've got a strong family history of cancers, including bowel cancer, particularly at an early age, you need to talk to your GP and you need to get referred to a genetic counsellor so that you can understand whether or not you do have it. It can be diagnosed quite easily. If you haven't got the genetic defect, then you're you're kind of free. You know you're not going to be at risk. But if you do have it, then you've got to be sur- you've got to have regular surveillance for the various forms of cancer. So your GP is your first port of call if you think you're in that group. Yep, and get referred to for genetic counselling so you can understand what the risk is and um, have the proper testing done. Well, that's everything in the mailbag for today. But if you've got a question, email us. We're at healthreport at abc.net.au. See you next time. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.